the Gerontological Society of America, Meaningful Lives as We Age. The photographic work of Chester Higgins Jr. wonderfully captures portraits of older African-Americans, along with short narratives describing their experiences throughout the years. While his work highlights the culture of what it means to age, there are very few mediums that capture the collective voices of academic scholars, community leaders, public policy advocates, students, care providers, and others lending to the experiences of aging as an older adult in the U.S. More importantly, there are no social platforms that allow historically marginalized older adults to tell their stories and experiences. Today, we're taking a slightly different approach in how we discuss aging and the contributions of the many who guided this narrative. Our focus specifically highlights the contributions of historically Black colleges and universities, also known as HBCUs. Established in the early 19th century, HBCUs were created to educate Black students when they were not allowed to attend certain public and or private predominantly white institutions. With increasing enrollment, HBCUs are now being recognized for their progressive academic presence in the Black community, educating distinguished scientists, inventors, politicians, and world leaders. These institutions have similarly become increasingly integrated into the aging network by educating some of the most influential Black gerontologists and geriatric practitioners. I'm Dr. Tamara Baker, professor at UNC Chapel Hill and founding member and co-convener of the GSA's HBCU Collaborative Interest Group and alumna of two HBCUs, Norfolk State University and North Carolina Central University. And with me is Dr. Alicia Gamaldo, professor at Clemson University and supporter of the HBCU Collaborative Interest Group. Today, we are honored to have a conversation with Mr. Lincoln Phillips, an alum and former soccer coach at Howard University, a world-renowned HBCU. What is more meaningful about this conversation is that Mr. Phillips is the first Black professional soccer coach in U.S. history, and under his tenure as coach, Howard University's soccer team became the first HBCU to win an NCAA championship, which is the focus of the film Redemption Song. I much prefer Coach, Coach <laughs> Phillips. Okay, Coach, Coach, yeah. Coach Phillips. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. That is very, very important to me because I think that the highest respect that someone can give to me is calling me Coach because coaches shape lives. Doctors save lives. Coaches shape lives. We are very important. Coaches and teachers, we are very, very important. So when when I'm I'm referred to as, I need to be called coach. I really appreciate that. Absolutely. I was so excited when we were having dinner and coming up with this idea of doing this podcast, which would be hopefully the first of many to come. And Coach Phillips would be that first guest. I mean, it was instantaneously, I went back to my room and I was like, was writing on my laptop, coming up with the idea to put it down on paper. And I you know, was thinking to myself, the best first guest to really fit, you know, the mission of what we were trying to accomplish was definitely Coach Phillips. Um, since his history with H HBCU, um, for the our listening audience, if you're not familiar with Coach Phillips, I strongly suggest that um, you definitely look him up. He's everywhere. 
If you do like any type of search on Google or your any preferred search engine, look up Lincoln Phillips because he is got a phenomenal history of an experience to just speak to his many accomplishments. He was the first black professional soccer coach here in the US. That's correct. And he actually was the first black coach mm-hmm. to win an NCAA collegiate championship in 1971 mm-hmm. and, and 1974. And he actually, caught, I think it's still in the books, mm-hmm. the first HBCU to ever win. First and only. And only a collegiate championship. So, I mean, I could go on and on about the narrative of Coach Phillips, but, um, you know, I'm here today to really kind of focus on his accomplishments, but also speak to, as Tamara and I have talked about, um, how his life course has shaped him throughout his life and how it's having a role in terms of how he's aging. Because for those of you who don't know Coach Phillips or Lincoln Phillips, he is 82 years old. 82, 82 years. Young. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, we can't make that mistake. 82 <laughs> years young. <laughs> I, I make it a point not to let the old man in. I keep, oh. the old, I keep the old man outdoors. He knocks on the door several times, but I never let him in. <laughs> <laughs> so... um. You know, many of us would never know that he's 82 years young because he is phenomenal in terms of what I envision as successful aging. So I I think it's so important, I hope, for our listening audience to understand and talk to someone like him who's had this rich experience, but also seems to be aging successfully. So I'm going to jump in um, to ask some questions because I think... You know, Dr. Baker and I have always talked about, we've met individuals like you, where we have like one-on-ones and it's just amazing, like, you know, physically, functionally, you know, mentally, just still performing at a heightened level. And the question is, what is the secret? Uh, Yeah, the secret is, uh, I just saw uh, on my cell phone, I was looking, I was scrolling through it there, and I saw a little uh, blurb with Clint Eastman, and he was on the golf course. And, you know, Clint, Clint Eastman is 88, you know, and uh, something came up about, something came up about his, his age, and he said, well, I, I'm 88. And he, he was playing golf with a country western um, singer, and um this singer said, I can't understand you at 88. What, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm making a new, a new movie. And he said, he said, at 88? He said, yes. He said, I can't understand how you do it. He said, um, don't let the, go, the old man in. And the country western singer uh, thought it was so, such a profound statement. He went home right away and he, and he made a recording on it. And it's uh, don't let the old man in, and it uh, it's uh, it had a lot of pictures and videos where you know an old man is at the door knocking and and he's keeping him out. So I thought that that was very profound, and um, I, I think that is one of the most important things. You know, don't let yourself feel old, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. and uh, and and always always try to do something 
different. Mm-hmm. It's something something new, something that you're not accustomed to. You know, you, for instance, you brush your teeth with your right hand all the time. Mm-hmm. Okay, brush it with your left hand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> brush it with your left hand. Look at a picture upside down. Mm-hmm. Okay, take a new route all the time. So it, it keeps the brain, you know, away from that sameness, that same thing over and over and over again. You know, the brain gets accustomed and it, it, it doesn't doesn't work very well. Mm-hmm. But when you, you challenge the brain to 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 get into new ideas and going to new different areas, the whole brain starts firing. Mm-hmm. And and that is very important, mm-hmm. you know. To, to keep you fresh and, and, and always firing with all cylinders. Mm-hmm. I always think about like going back in time. Were you getting that type of messaging? Were you always kind of thinking about, okay, I want to try new paths. I want to try new things. Is that something that you found yourself doing when you were in your 20s? And it's just been a consistent pattern that you've been following? Or did you notice that that changed as you got older, that you're like, okay, now I'm going to try something new. I've been doing the same routine over and over, but I'm going to try something new. Well, that's a, that's a good question. You know, you take, you, you, you take, you're taking me back now, you know, it's uh, back in, in time. And, um, you know, my life has been a, one of a, a constant struggle. People look at strugglers. Something bad, but I, you know, looking back, I, you know, over the years, I, I see struggle. Struggle is something that's good. Struggle is God's gift. It, it, it makes you stronger. And throughout my life, you know, uh, from a kid, we, we, we were not poor, Dr. Gamaldo. We were not poor, but we were broke as hell. And we had to find a lot of different uh, new ways. Uh, and uh, to to survive, and so I was always I was always in that I was always in that mode, and um, growing up, <clears throat> where we had a a lot of children, in, you know, in and around the area. Of course, our yard was uh, uh, was like a community center. Out of all the 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 players, I was the worst in everything, whether it's soccer, cricket, you name it, and it. it it did not feel good. I used to cry. My mom, thank God, my mother, who was my greatest inspirator, you know, and my big sister, they used to comfort me. And But what happened as a result of that, I cannot say that I, you know, just took it upon myself and said, well, this is the right thing to do. I mean, it just happened. I just felt that I, you know, I had to train a little harder. Mm-hmm. Now, for instance, say like the team would train three days a week, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I would train on the mornings of those three days, and Tuesday, Thursday, I would train twice. I would just do it, you know. And then all of a sudden, that was, that was around eight, nine, ten years of age, twelve, you know. And um, whenever... Uh, uh, folks got together to pick two teams, you know, there's, there are 11 players on the team, okay, and we always got down to 11 and 12. So, so it always comes down to picking me last. But after 
when I turned 14, all of a sudden, just all the hell broke loose. I was the first pe- uh, person they, they, they wanted to get on, on their team. So, you know, it, 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 it was always a challenge. Okay. And from there, um, I, I, there was a school called Queens Royal College and the, the top five percentage of the students, best scholars go to that school. So definitely academically, I was not really, um, I, I didn't, I didn't make the cut, but because of all, all my friends who were there and I, I, I just, I just wanted to go. God found a way for me to go. I started to play at 17, at 16 years of age. I was playing so great. I was playing in the first division with the men and, and viewed as one of the top goalkeepers in the country and so on at 16, you know? And, um, and I remember one game in particular. And that's where I, uh, your dad, Victor Gamaldo, and I met for the first time. He was 14, I was 17. And he, you know, we just hit it off as though we were just playing soccer for centuries, you know? And the games master at Queens Royal College was the manager of that team. And I got into Queens Royal College. Mm -hmm. It was the most difficult thing, one of the most difficult things for me because academically I wasn't ready, you know? Uh, but they, they, we had fantastic teachers, mm-hmm. fantastic teachers, and and no one ever made fun of me. You know, I you know I would say like you know, we, we're doing mathematics, and somebody lacks uh, the, the teacher lacks something like ten and ten, and I would say blue. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was so of course. You know, and sometimes even my even my my friends, you know. If they ask me something, they'll whisper the answer at the back of my ear. And the, and, and the teachers took care of me. They, took, they didn't make fun of me. Mm-hmm. You know, a good example. They would ask a question. I'd, I, don't answer, I can't answer the question. And then he said, uh, I remember Mr. Jones closing the book and says, Well, Mr. Phillips, if you're on the soccer goalpost, on the soccer line, what is the distance from the soccer goal line to the six-yard box. Six yards, he said, fantastic. Mm-hmm. So what is the distance from the goal line to the 24-yard line? Mm-hmm. I said, 24 yards? He said, you're doing great. <laughs> and he, I realized what he did. He took me into my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And he applied the topic to soccer. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand it at the time. But looking back, you know, but I had fantastic people, you know, teachers in particular, mm-hmm. who really helped me get over it. It's not being dumb or anything like that. It's just not understanding something and somebody coming in and saying, this is what you're doing. This is the way to go. I say, oh, okay, I can do that. But you need, at that time, you need that help and that person, teacher, must have the knowledge and understanding that that is exactly what you need. You know, it's a fantastic feeling. And from then on, I knew I was going to be either a teacher or teacher and coach. And that is what I've been over the years. 
So that's very interesting because you know, we talk about life course in our field mm-hmm. and we talk about how those early experiences really do impact mm-hmm. how we age mm-hmm. and how, and some of the things that we've encountered could have a meaningful impact as we, we get older. You know, you talked about this idea of like having a good social support mm-hmm. network that's helped you to navigate those early life challenges. So does, is that something that you felt definitely resonated as you got older, knowing that you had that social support network structure so young to help you kind of find your comfort zone yeah. that, to overcome challenges? Exactly. You're, you're quite correct. That, that, that social network, you know, I, I grew up with my mother. My father was, you know, was not broken home. We never got married or anything like that. And he used to come home two or three times a week, uh, but with a fantastic father, okay? And, and my mother was my, was my, she was my everything. And my big sister uh, had a lot of aunts and uncles, and so a lot of cousins, so much. Then I had a batch of uh, cousins down in, uh, in the country. They had a farm, and they, they had a lot of fruit trees, I mean, all kinds of foods you could think of. That used to be heaven. Mm-hmm. And you had another group of cousins up on the other side. You know, they had eight kids. And, and we would just play for the entire day. And so I grew up with that kind of social network. And um, fortunately, fortunately for me, when I got older and I got married and I came to America, we had a social network that was that, that was fantastic. Okay, first of all, your father Victor Camaldo got married to my to my wife's sister, so we had we we were, we were tight. Okay, and then then her brother came up, you know, and he got married and so on, and so we had that network. I mean, we had parties. Any somebody sneezed, we had a party for that. <laughs> and that is true. I do remember that. <laughs> years, and then when we got a little bigger, you know, um, my, my wife's sister, uh, which is uh, uh, Dr. Gamala's mom, you know, we would have Thanksgiving there. And then they, we got a little bigger and so on. Who are grown uh, right now? And they always remember the fun and the laughter because obviously, uh, Victor, my, my best friend, and uh, Dr. Kamala's dad, and we would go back all, over old stories. And those kids, we remember them. And we just used to eat a lot, had a lot of fun. The youngsters were playing. And that's how, that's the environment when I came to the United States for at least 20 years. And up until now, that still exists. What broke it up a bit was the pandemic, mm-hmm. you know? But we're looking forward to <clears throat> getting back together again and, and having that fun and that laughter and exchanging ideas and stories and so on. And we're looking forward. But that helped immensely in dealing with, with whatever problems I encountered along the way. Yeah, especially with you um, coming to the U.S. And you came pretty much in the 60s yes. <laughs> during critical historical events such as the civil rights movement and you were you were you know actually doing coaching the professional coaching you were coaching howard i, I 
I mean, like you were definitely facing a lot of experiences like racism and all sorts of things being in the public light. Like how did you, how did those networks help with, with that? Well, I'm sure that you brought that up. You know, I came into the country. I was playing, as a matter of fact, I was playing with my national team, Trinidad and Tobago. We were playing in the Panam games and we won a bronze medal. Mm-hmm. First and only time we ever won a bronze medal. We played against Argentina, Colombia, Mexico. We beat all of them. And that was the biggest shock in the world. So United States was just about to start their professional soccer, mm-hmm. the North American Soccer League. And several of us got contracts to come to the United States. And I remember vividly we trained in, in Jamaica, January and February and March. I came up and we were in a cinema to myself and two of my teammates. And my wife was supposed to come up the next week. And then on the screen, they said, ladies and gentlemen, we have an announcement to make. Okay. Will you please get up and leave? Uh, quietly, Dr. Martin Luther King has been just shot. Mm. Mm, wow. I didn't know what that was because I'm, I'm in the country. I, I was just a few. But by the time and I'm living in Baltimore, by the time I reached outside, the Baltimore was burning. I just, it was just, it was just one hell of an experience. And from there, you know, I really got to find out what's going on. And then I was made coach of the Washington Darts. That was another opportunity that just landed on in my lap there. And that was the first time that a black coach had coached a professional team. And we won all our games. And from there, I, you know, I went to Howard University. God led me to Howard University. Howard University has always been involved with all black movements everywhere and anywhere in the world. Howard University has been the custodian of all black activities. And it's when I got to Howard, I recognized what is going on here. All of a sudden, we start, we start this college team start winning games. And everybody's against us. The officials were horrible, okay? Opposing players were spitting at us and calling us niggas, go back home and, you know, and we had to play in that environment. But I, with the experience that I had, I had to, I had to, to let my players know, yes, they may call you a nigger, but you, what's, what's your great point average? You have a four-point average, great. <laughs> you're an engineer, great. So, so you're a nigga with a four-point average and engineering. So, so what? So they can say whatever they want. I did not realize at that time what a state that statement meant. Mm-hmm. Because later on, the players over the years have acknowledged how important it was for them to deal in, in situations where there is racialism. Mm-hmm. I told them, listen, some of these players may not be racist, but they know if they call you 
nigger. And I, I, I use the word nigger because everybody keeps saying the N-word, the N-word, the N-word. It's nigger. You know? They know that you're going to get mad and it's going to throw you off the game. So tactically, that's a good tactic to get you off your game. Mm. So what you have to do is to understand that it's a tactic. So don't get mad when they call your names. Get smart. Get smart. Don't do something that will get you out of the game or get you in trouble. You know what I'm saying? Do something that will that that will that will hurt them more than anything else and help you more than anything else, and that is to score a goal. So anytime they call you any names, a goal we score. And mm. sooner, very soon, the names stop calling because we started pouring on some goals. And players have told me over the years, Coach, I remember when you used to tell us this, and we face it in life, and this is how we dealt with it. There was a, a one of my players, uh, an Ethiopian, at our 25th anniversary. His wife, a very soft-spoken Ethiopian, came to me and said, Coach, I want to thank you for my husband. I said, what do you mean? He said, anytime they, they encountered any trouble in their lives, they would say, he would say, this is how we dealt with it at Howard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh my goodness. But I just said it, you know, found ways of adjusting and, and, and not letting people throw you off course, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, uh, again, I was able to do that because I had the confidence in, in everything because of my, of, of my circle, my mm -hmm. family circle. Okay? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I had good people around me. So I was able to impart those kinds of advice mm -hmm. to, to my young black players. Mm -hmm. And and it's also, it goes back to, you know, to hear that part of the narrative, to hear your early life experience. And then going back to the beginning of our conversation where you're like, in terms of as you're, you're getting older, you're willing to take these challenges, right? So it seems like there's this connection, right? Like mm -hmm. all of these experiences seem and correct me if i'm wrong seem to have encouraged you to say i'm okay with taking on this challenge mm -hmm. um whatever it may be is is that something that you know you feel like hey i welcome the obstacle yes i do <laughs> yes i do oh. I, I, I do that's a I great mean, question yeah. <laughs> you know that's, yeah. uh, you know that's powerful <laughs> yeah it's just it's a great question man you know you know while coaching, I was playing professional soccer. I was coaching Howard at the same time. Okay? Now, to coach Howard University, you had to have had a, a bachelor's degree. I didn't have a bachelor's degree. I only had 32 credits. So I had to be in class doing 15 credits while coaching the soccer team. And the funny thing about it is that some of the guys, most of the guys in my class, uh, soccer players, they were A students, and I was just hanging on with a C. <laughs> it, it was difficult. But they used to, on road trips, they used to help me. And that was the strength of my coaching. 
I would I, I allowed them to help me. But when it came to soccer, I had a PhD in soccer. I was better as a professional player. I was better than all of them. As a matter of fact, they used to come and see me play on the professional level. So they had we had a mutual respect for mutual respect for one another, you know. And that grew from time to time. Some of the courses I was doing in school, <laughs> it was difficult. I never had done science, and I had to do anatomy and physiology. And I came up on a word called some muscle. Um, it, it had it had about twenty-seven words, twenty-seven letters in the word. How how am I going to understand that? I remember that, but I I would always there's always somebody in the circle that I I could seek, and they will show me. And this muscle in particular, this old guy by the name of Kelvin Joseph, he said, Linko, that is easy. That muscle, not a problem. He said, you, do you know your anatomy? I said, yes. He said, where's your, where's your um, thorax, right? Yeah. And he said, where's your, where's your clavicle here? Yeah? And where's your mastoid process? He said, that muscle goes from, of course, from, it's attached from your thorax across the clavicle to is a thoracleidomastoid muscle. And it was so easy. It was so easy the way he, he told me. So I the, the challenge of understanding something, I always had to go some, to somebody. And then I got to find out, wait a minute, if I know about the muscles and how they move and I could make up my own exercises, oh my God, it was beautiful. And now I started going back to fourth grade books, you know, little infant books on anatomy and physiology where they have a lot of colors and all that. I became fascinated. I started liking school because, you know, the, the, what I did in school helped me out. You know, the psychology of coaching, it helped me out. And I started seeking all of these, what people call challenges. I, I, I just took them on. I just, I just started to like them. You know, you know, and anytime anything looked kind of easy, I would kind of question it. You know, <laughs> I won't get, give me something hard, you know, like uh, winning a championship. We, in the area, Washington area, we had American University, at Maryland University, had several universities. I said, we want to be the best university in soccer in the area, which was very, very tough. I said, and, and, and the region and in the nation. And everybody said, what are you talking about? Yes, we want to be the best in, you know, in the nation. And you know what? The first year we went to the finals and we lost. Mm -hmm. But we knew then. We could get to the finals. We can win. Right. Yeah. And the next year, we won every game. Right. Every game. And looking back, looking back, in retrospect, I, I believe a message that, that we, that we sent to the players and all players, especially in the HBCUs. Okay. Set your goals high. Make it an impossible goal. Make your goals impossible. Okay. And it's only impossible because it has never been done before. Mm -hmm. So just to hit on that note, like fast forward. That I, and I'll bring up an experience that reminds me of make the impossible. You had your knees replaced <laughs> and 
their, your recovery time was unprecedented. <laughs> yes. Because did you pretty much live by that motto, yeah. set your goals? Yeah. So could you tell the audience about like? <laughs> well, you know, I had two uh, D's that and eventually when I went to the doctor, as a matter of fact, your dad, who had a, a knee operation, a knee replacement, they, they said, I could hardly walk. I, my legs were bowed so badly. Yeah. And I didn't know which one to bend. I, I decided to drag one. I was pitiful. And he told me, he said, he encouraged me, he said, go see the doctor. And, you know, I went to the doctor. The doctor said, well, here's the news. Your right knee is really bad and your left knee is worse. <laughs> so, so he said, listen, let's operate on both of them at the same time. And at that time, nobody was doing that. If you had two knees, they would operate on one. And wait until, you know, maybe a year. To, he says, you're an athlete. Okay. And apparently he got, he knew me. I don't know. He didn't know me for, from long ago, but he, 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 he apparently sensed something in me. He says, you're an athlete. I don't want you to recuperate on, 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 a, on a bad leg. So let's do both of them together. And the first day I was walking. Then I went to rehab, and if the nurse asked me to walk five yards when she was not looking, I walked 15 yards. <laughs> you see, whatever exercise they asked me to do, I did a little more. I did a little more. And while I was in my bed, I was moving my legs all the time. So after six days, they said, look, you ready to go? I came outside, and with a month and a half, I was ready. I was walking, ready to get on a plane to go back to Trinidad. I never allow my legs to defeat me. I was never, ever defeated. I was never on my back, you know. For a while, yes, but I bounced back. And I always, I was, I, whatever my struggles were, I, I just attacked it with vigor, knowing that I'm in charge, not you. I'm in charge. And that came from, from, from growing up and, and all the experiences we had. And um, uh, to me, in, in, in all of the challenges I've faced, you know, that was the attitude that I went into then. Not, oh my goodness, why, why me? No. God sent this struggle to test me and prepare me for the next mission. Mm. So, I mean, that actually leads to one of a great segue to, I guess, you know, my next big question of you spoke of how the messaging that you provided to your players, how it resonated even in their life course. Mm -hmm. So uh, for, for this podcast and particularly the listeners who could be some of our early stage scholars in the field, academic scholars and maybe grad students, undergrads that may be listening to us, particularly from HBCUs, mm -hmm. what kind of messaging would you like to send them um, about, you talked about resiliency and perseverance and like just having these goals, these like goals that may seem unattainable, having that mindset, like what advice would you share to these young, this younger generation, particularly a, a black academic scholars or professionals on how to navigate some of the obstacles that 
they're likely going to face as they're trying to build their career at academia. I mean, you worked at an academic institution, so you've probably seen some of yeah, that. Of course, of course. So what would be your advice to them? The word understand is a huge word. Okay? If there's a problem in mathematics, if you understand it, you can get to the answer. If you don't understand it, you don't get to the answer. Black folks have got to understand the game, where we are, okay? We will be discriminated. That's how the world is. Whether uh, if, if, if a group of people gets on top, they want to keep others down, whether they're black, brown, short, Catholic, whatever. Wherever there was civilization, there was always stratification. There was always. And we must understand that the folks are not going to like us. Folks are going to keep us back. Folks are, don't, don't want us to, to, to show how good we are. So we must understand that. Not accept it, but must understand it. And we must prepare for it. Okay? And we must set our goals high. Bruce Lee, one of the greatest martial arts individuals in the world, he said that was his philosophy. Set your goals impossible and we as a people I find that, that that we set our goals it's just too low we go for the low hanging fruit now no more low hanging fruit my friend okay we gotta go and look for the highest fruit that's number one goal have respect for yourself respect yourself okay we need to have more respect for each other. Self-esteem, I believe that we are doing very, very well with self-esteem. But the problem is group esteem. Mm, that's very important. I agree. Okay. The cohesiveness. Yes. Okay. Working together as a group and understanding that this group is powerful. It's as powerful as any that ever put together. Believe in your group. If you believe in yourself. Then let's believe in each mm -hmm. other. And and actually, it it speaks to we've had this conversation before. I think sports helps to naturally feel that way. Yes, playing in a team sports like soccer. Mm -hmm. So I think I, I remember having a conversation with you years back. I played soccer for the listening audience <laughs> since I was what three. <laughs> you had you had no choice because. <laughs> Because your dad, your dad was an avid soccer player, professional, and Uncle Lincoln was right there. So I played, I played at collegiate level. One time, I almost, you know, I tried out for the national team in Trinidad. But it, it was always something that, even though I didn't go on to play professionally like you and and my dad, it was always something that messaging that I always took with me that still resonates in my academic career. As I run my research lab, I think of cohesiveness this is a team i find myself saying team, team. we got to work as a team exactly you know it's, it's 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 so important it's so important i coached after i left howard i coached vcu this is about the worst soccer team i've ever coached in my life and the first year we won three games out of 15. i mean it was it was horrible second year we won three but we tied seven you know we played better but still and the third year I remember that moment. We had dinner at one of the players' parents. I mean, we started talking to us and the place got real quiet. 
It was really quiet. And he said, you guys, you are a good team. You're good players. But you must be of one accord. And that one accord, that hit me like a bell. Bang. One accord. He says, one drop of rain is inconsequential. So, but billions is, is a hurricane. It's powerful. If you band together, if you band together, you're powerful. If you guys play for one another, and we just sat down there and lapped up what he said. When I got back to my office, I put on my door one accord. So I had on my door one accord. And the difference that word to us, the difference was that particular season, we won 15 games. Mm. And we were the top 10 in the country. Mm-hmm. Okay? Basically the same team. But the belief that, 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 that we playing for each other, we, we are interdependent. Yeah. You know, that just, just, just took us from, from average to way up in the air. It's a big word, one accord. And, and if we, if we, the more we can do that, the better life we're going to see eventually. And what better way to really do that is to, is to be engaged, especially early in life in a, in a team event. Mm-hmm. Very, very important. Mm-hmm. One accord. And I, I just did, you know, transfer it into our academic circles. I, I think of that one accord, you know, for the listening audience, how do I pull this into what I'm doing now? It, it goes with the idea of, you know, being with groups such as this HBC group for a GSA. That's an example of how a one accord system could work, working with, you know, other researchers who also have a vested interest yeah. in, in the same mission, doing like collaborative interdisciplinary work together yeah. so from a research side exactly. that's part of that one accord exactly. Exactly. Um, for for those of the for our listeners who are trying to figure out how do i implement that into my academic and research life that's what i think of yes. did you agree I, I definitely agree this um oneness of purpose and um and reaching out thinking and knowing that you in order to to, to learn more because you need to be a, a student of your profession mm-hmm. And if you're a student of your profession, you will reach out. Outside there, sometimes you have the answer right next to you. And you would not have known if you didn't, if you didn't have the ability and attitude of reaching out. Yeah. It doesn't matter who, red, white, black, you know, uh, if, reach out and, and, and you can get information from the, from, from people that you wouldn't believe that they, they would think that way. Mm-hmm. They will offer those experiences, you know, aim high. Aim high, you know, don't major in mediocrity, you know, major at the highest, highest level. If you can be, if you have the capacity to be a doctor, just understand that that's not enough. You've got to have the will to do what it takes to be a doctor or to achieve whatever you want to achieve. So having the goal set and the capacity to get there what will take you over the line is the will to get up two o'clock in the morning, study, go to get, go to another job, study and no sleep at all. But you have to finish mm-hmm. this research. Mm-hmm. You've got to have the will. And that's how you're going to be better than everybody. That's how you're going to be really, really successful in life. And the attitude, you know, never give up. 
never be defeated, never give up. And the last one is adjustments. If you're going after something and you, and you hit your head up against the wall, you know, you get up and you try again. You know, you hit it against the wall. But the third time, you have to ask yourself, the wall doesn't hurt. My head hurts. <laughs> so, so there's got to be another way to get around this wall. So if you, if you go to the side of the wall, you might see a gate open. So whenever you're faced with a problem and you can't do it, pull back, approach it from another angle, and then say, oh, it's easy, it's a ladder, I can get over the wall here, okay? And look for another way, okay, to get over. And those are the things that, uh, that if we as, as a people, if we do these things, we are bound to be successful. We are bound to be successful. Well, I mean, I, I think all of those things have been powerful messaging that I think I've been hearing throughout my life course. That's correct. <laughs> so for, you know, for the people out there who know me well and those that don't know but know my work, a lot of these messagings, I think, have pretty much propelled me in the directions I've gone in throughout my career and how I approach things. So I thank you. And thank my parents for those messaging, because I think it, it definitely has been challenges in, in building my academic and professional career. And definitely, in, in especially in academics, the academic world, as Dr. Baker can attest to, you know, we, we, we get feedback constantly in terms of our manuscripts, we're, we're getting critiqued. Our presentations, when we go out there, we typically have a Q&A and there's a critique part of that process. And then definitely when we write grants, there's critiquing involved. So sometimes, you know, things don't pan out, like you don't get the grant, your paper gets rejected, and you have to have that ability to have that type of messaging that you just described to be able to kind of say, okay, let me regroup yep. and let me figure out a way that I can kind of tackle this to get to that goal, which is to get this manuscript published or to get this grant out um, so that I could do the work that I think is beneficial for understanding the aging process, particularly for the work I do um, working with uh, older Black adult populations or, or populations that are typically underrepresented in science. You know, like the, that's like my goal. That's the mission. And so, yes, there's going to be these obstacles of getting the grants or getting that manuscript out. But again, that messaging mm -hmm. is what kind of helps keep that perseverance to kind exactly. of say, hey, yes, I didn't get it now, but doesn't mean I'm going to stop. Yeah. Right? And, and that, that's, that's, that's so important. And uh, one last thing, I, I mean, all of this is very important. You're goal-oriented, you're resilient, and, uh, and, and you're, you're humble, and all, all these things are very important. But the one most important human factor that I, that I, I feel that will take you over the top is, is humanity. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the human factor. And when you get success, if you have the desire to go back and help other people successful, you have, you have that humanness in you to help others to be success, success, successful. Okay. And a, a person with humanity, they, they can look into another person and, and come at the right time and give that person exactly what that person needs to be successful. They have that ability, that humanness. 
you know, they serve the human beings and all that they, they look for. And somebody uh, uh, with, 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 with humanity in their soul, if he's a doctor, he will be the best doctor. If he's a, he's a teacher, he will be the best teacher. If he's a soccer player, he'll be the best soccer player. Okay? Because he likes people, understands people, and those same people will do anything for him. So as a professional, you know, invest in other people. Okay? And lastly, whatever, wherever you go, regardless of how far you reach, always look back. Always look back and pull somebody up. So I, I think on that note, I feel like I want to end on such a powerful note and say thank you, Coach Phillips. My pleasure. My pleasure. Um, for, for meeting with us to share your narrative, but also these really great perspectives. Yes. Um, you know, for our listening audience out there, um, and I, I can't even you know, say how much this is extremely appreciated on um, your time in, today. And I, I just also want to thank, you know, uh, my, 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 my immediate family, my wife, my kids. I mean, without them, I would never be able to be in a position to, to assist other people. So that our family structure is so important, okay? Very, very important pay close attention to the family. Okay. So, I mean, you're just hitting on everything. <laughs> yeah. In my adult and in my adult and life course development course, you just hit on pretty much all the chapters, right? Dr. Baker. <laughs> yeah. I'm over here taking notes. So I, I'm, you know, working as a team and adjustment and, you know, everything that you mentioned just resonates so well. And again, like Alicia mentioned, you know, this is our life in academia and everything yes. that you mentioned is exactly, you know, what we've been through, what we're going through. And for the listening audience, I'm sure someone can resonate with, with exactly what you mentioned. So thank, thank you, you again for your time. This has thank been amazing. You so, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Wonderful. And uh, Alicia, thank you very much. You know, you know I, I love you with all my heart. <laughs> <laughs> and and to see what you're doing, see what you've grown up, and to see what you're doing and where you are, it's just, oh man, it's mind-boggling. And, 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 you know, it's, I'm so happy for you, I'm so happy for the people you work with, the kids you work with, and, you know, it's just a win-win situation. God bless you, and may God go before you, and make it safe and successful your way. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org. G-E-R-O-N.org.